0: Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. Few guests exemplify this borderland more than the person I'll be talking with today. He is Jeremy Kaufman, CEO and founder, co-founder of a technology platform called Library, spelled L-B-R-Y. Before we get to that, though, a couple notes. We recorded an episode live at the Key West Theater on August 19th. If you weren't there, you missed out, but you haven't missed out completely. That show is now available on the podcast feed, or at MattAsher.com. It includes my conversation with Vaughn Scribner about his book, Merpeople, A Human History. We talk about the long history of mermaids and tritons, their male counterparts in religion, science, and culture. The show also includes live music from the always brilliant Miles Mancuso. Make sure to download that episode and keep listening to the show for an announcement about our next live event and also note that the email address for the show is info at com. that's i-n-f-o at m-o-r-a-y-b-a-y.com send along all your feedback good or bad and now without any further ado it is my great pleasure to bring on my guest jeremy kaufman to talk about his odyssey Jeremy, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, Matt, it's great to be here with you today.
0: It's great to have you on the show. We, we both have technical backgrounds, but most of the audience here doesn't. So I'm hoping we can talk about your platform without getting too deep into the woods, since one of the topics will be blockchain and Uh, Please don't tune out just yet if you're thinking about that. Let's start with a bridge to something that almost everybody understands, the spreadsheet. For the purposes of this conversation, think of blockchains like a shared spreadsheet that you can add rows to, but nothing can be edited once it's added. That's it. There are all kinds of rules about how these rows are to be added and how we make sure the information is correct, but that's it. From my understanding, Library is a blockchain for content, or more precisely, data about content. Tell us about how Library came about and what problem it solves.
1: Well, that's absolutely correct. And I will answer your question, but to start in the shallowest way possible, what I'll say is there's a website called Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E. It's built on top of the library technology. It's the easiest thing to use in the world. It passes the mom test. My mom can use it. My grandparents can use it. Um, you know, it is it is very user friendly, uh, and it's used by um, more than forty million people each month uh, to watch videos to share content. Now. Part of why people are excited about it is this library technology behind it, which is pretty revolutionary. But in the same way that the internal combustion engine was was revolutionary, you don't need to know how it works to drive your car, right? You know, yeah. Well, I was gonna say you turn the key, but you don't do that anymore. You push the button. Um, you know, but it's uh, it just works. And so Odyssey just works. And we're gonna dig into the cool stuff behind it on this show. But you don't have to. If you're, you know, I don't, I don't want to lose people and have them feel like, oh, it's really this complex thing. We describe how an engine works. It's complex. Using, uh, driving a car is not complex, right? And so, so Odyssey lets you drive the car, very easy, um, very popular, big name content creators uh, on there. A lot of people say it's like YouTube was a decade ago. Um, you know, where it's more independent, kind of more freewheeling. Um, uh, and, and all kinds of interesting things you can you can find in, on, on there. But I'll bring it back to your question, um, which is what is Library and how does it work? And Library is a blockchain-based publishing protocol. It's a decentralized protocol. That means that there's not one place where the entire system is controllable. Um, it has properties quite similar to Bitcoin, um, but it's doing it in this space of digital publishing rather than trying to be money
0: to get back to that idea of it being easy to use i i did go on the odyssey site and there's a tool there to import all of your videos from youtube and i did that and that seemed to work uh, perfectly well so you don't have to understand the technology to get in and use it It, if you're familiar with youtube you'll be very familiar with uh, the interface and how things work there and can get your content ported over Though, why, you know, why would you bother using your service if YouTube already exists?
1: Well, YouTube, I think, has become um, very, both very sort of—I um, don't know if you want to attribute it to them being political. It's clear that their policies are unpopular with creators and users alike. One word for what YouTube has become might be um, paternalistic. You know, um, the CEO and, and various executives are on record saying that they specifically show you things that are unpopular with their users because they think it's important that you see them. Um, YouTube gives huge boosts to things like CNN and MSNBC and these and these uh, corporate news channels. It's no longer focused on the kind of independent content creator that made them big. Um, There's even these sort of secret scores that they assign to each channel that's basically how trustworthy does YouTube think this person is. And if YouTube doesn't like you, your content won't get shown to people, and part of what's different about our approach is all of our algorithms are open. Everything we do is what's called open source, which means they can be read by by computer science professionals and, and by technical professionals. So there's no secrets. There's no ability for this secret kind of manipulation um, to happen, which I think like basically all of these Silicon Valley companies are are doing to us, um, and so. You know the the w- way that we're doing things, it's much more open, it's much more transparent, it's much more fair, and that's part of why it's been such a success. You know, Odyssey literally didn't exist a year ago, and it's grown to you know forty million people already. That's that's uh, that's some pretty rapid growth, and it and it shows how frustrated people are with the status quo. It's very.
0: important. Impressive, especially because any kind of hosting platform, in particular, videos, has the chicken and egg problem or the network effects problem, where you want people to use your service, but if you go on a, a video service and you see there's only three videos there, well, you're not going to join and you're not going to add uh, your own videos there. There's no, there's no people there. There's no videos. Why would you bother? how did you go about getting over that initial hurdle of having enough content and users to make it worth even visiting the website?
1: Yeah. Well, Odyssey did cheat in this regard because it was built on top of library Library is several years older. And so library did, um, spend years kind of building up that content catalog to the point where we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of creators and, and, you know, um, I think we're certainly at well over 10 million, um, videos. So pretty, pretty diverse catalog. Um, one of the things we did uh, to, to, to solve these sort of chicken and egg problems was we came up with this idea of of the YouTube uh, sync program. So in the early days of library, we would reach out to creators and say, hey, you know, you can put all of your content on this new blockchain-based platform. You'll earn some of the the library cryptocurrency for doing that. And it's no work for you, right? You press a button and it just kind of all magically happens. Um, and so, you know, if you can go to someone with a sort of, uh, heads, you win; tails, nothing happens. Proposition. Those those propositions are, um, are are very appealing. They're the kinds of bets you should look for in life. Uh, something good could happen to me, but if uh, if it doesn't happen, nothing bad happens. And that's sort of the offer we were able to give creators. And, and of course, there are also a lot of creators who are keyed into the fact that that blockchain is um, the, the. I'm not going to say it's the future of like all of the internet, but it's definitely changing the. It's changing the internet. It's the future in a lot of ways, and you know we were, we've really been at the cutting edge of that. Um, there's really no one doing um, blockchain based this blockchain based kind of uh, video or blockchain based publishing um, the way that we are.
0: I'm talking with Jeremy Kaufman, the founder of a video sharing website Odyssey, and we're talking in part about this idea of censorship or algorithm manipulation, which is. Um, in in some sense, inevitable. Any, Any website that's going to display videos has to decide what videos are going to be featured, what you're going to see when you get there, how the search works. Every search algorithm is going to be different in terms of which results it surfaces. And uh, you mentioned that the, at Odyssey, these algorithms are open source, which it means that people can uh, see and understand, if they're more technical, how they work and why they're seeing what they see when they go to the first page or or do a search. One of the big concerns you mentioned is censorship. This is, this is when these companies are either spiking a video or sometimes just... Doing things that are like a shadow ban, which people don't know, is it just makes it harder to find the content. You may have uploaded it, people may be able to see it if they go directly to that page, but it's effectively disappeared from their search algorithm what What is the approach that Odyssey is taking and and how is that different from the underlying platform library in terms of the availability of content and and uh, who is able to publish what?
1: Yeah. and the the shadow banning in particular is almost the most nefarious because when your video is deleted, you know <laughs> when your channel is just, you know, put at the bottom of the results. And, and there are examples where there are channels where the channel was allowed to remain on YouTube, but you could literally type in the name of the channel and it wouldn't show up in, in the first several pages of, of results. Um, and it came out, uh, you can Google like leaked YouTube P scores or something and, and find these news articles about where YouTube was accidentally leaking this information to the public. Uh, and it became known that, you know, the sort of thing that people suspected was true was confirmed, Well, where they'll just put this big negative. Weight on a channel and, and make sure that it's not um, not getting returned, and uh, and even the deletions were unprecedented. Where you have um, there's. Uh Dozens of medical doctors, elected officials. Uh, I mean, even the former president of the United States, you um, basically was not allowed to share content on these sites. And so it's tough to say that there's not some kind of political motivations here. Um, and so our approach is we're much more apolitical, um, we're much more hands off, uh, and we're very sort, you know, inclusive in what we allow. Now we're not trying to put. Um, you know, edgy stuff or provocative stuff. It's, you know, we see it as people have the right to make choices for themselves. And that's sort of our guiding philosophy in how we code and design everything. Um, getting into how the algorithms work specifically is a complex subject. But again, our our solutions are public and they are, um, for people who are more technical, they, they can interpret them and, and, and read them.
0: Still, Still on that topic of censorship um, decisions have to be made about that and you can say yes that's that's in the algorithm Um, but you do you do have to prevent certain people from using this does that extend down to the platform library or are you just blocking people at the level of odyssey
1: yeah. It's, it's, well, it's questionable whether the word, pl- I, I do sometimes call library a platform, you know, is it even a platform? Is Bitcoin a platform? You know, it's, um, library is uh, a, a decentralized technology. So at the level of the blockchain, we don't have the ability if, to, to reach into your computer and take away your publishing key. So at the decentralized library blockchain level, there's not one place to control the network. And that's not really any different than, say, email. There's not one place that, you know, you can't call up the CEO of email and say, hey, take this email out of this guy's inbox. That's not the way that that email works. Um, so library is in some sense a return to the more traditional form of the web, where there's not one place to, to control it all. Um, and so library is no different from, from that. At the level of Odyssey, we do have more, uh, we do have some, you know, content policies and content guidelines. It's not completely anything goes. We do think it's it's um, you know more fairer than than YouTube is. But for example, you know, you can't post adult content. You know, you can't uh, encourage people you know, to go commit you know acts of violence or acts of terrorism and this kind of thing. Um, so there are there are rules and that. That stuff cannot be entirely handled via algorithms. So we do have a staff that processes reports and, and responds to and makes those kinds of decisions. Um, but again, everything we're doing is is public. You know, we're not hiding it. We're not trying to do these kinds of secret manipulations in terms of how we how we deal with it.
0: Getting back to that initial analogy, so that people understand how this works, the the right only spreadsheet, the spreadsheet that anyone with the proper permission uh, or key, as you say, can add to. Um, the idea is that th- this exists, it's out there, anyone who wants can join this decentralized network and add to that pool of, of data about content. Um, but what what you guys at Odyssey decide to pull out of that and display or the user interface that you put on top of that, that's entirely at your discretion.
1: That's exactly right. And similarly, anyone else can do that. So even if if Odyssey ever became Uh, became, you know, started behaving the way that that YouTube did and be said, hey, we're going to go corporate, Uh, screw the indie guys who made us big. And I'll say that's never going to happen while I'm running the company. Um, But even if it did happen somehow, there's this ability uh, for this new one to simply be sprung up, you know, almost overnight. And um, because of the design of the underlying technology, like your, fo- your follower relationships, they're not owned by us. They're, it's it's similar to Bitcoin where they're, they're kind of locally owned and locally controlled. Um, so it really is a next generation approach.
0: It reminds me a bit of a project that I was working on for a while called Before the Ban, the idea being that you would set up a decentralized index of people on different social networks and the people you follow, And then if your account was lost because of censorship, hacking, or any other reason, people could find your new location so essentially it was a, a map to get to where the people you follow have gone to and where their content has moved to so that you this this layer, I'm trying not to be too technical here, uh, but this, this layer of abstraction protects you so that if you are banned in some way people can still get at what you have created and to some extent what you've done is abstracted away the social network itself from the sp- specific implementation. So if you could imagine that you're on Facebook, on Facebook you have a number of links with friends and you have content that you've created, and that lives within the walled garden of Facebook. But in theory, it doesn't have to. It could be that Facebook is just the the interface, the visuals that are laid on top of that content and that set of relationships. And I even though that particular project hasn't uh, taken off i'm still a firm believer that this is the future of the internet and that people should be whenever possible taking advantages of networks that allow you in a sense to take your network with you
1: exactly that's exactly our our approach um, I will say, as we talk about you know, the bannings and the people who are being outright censored, and in my view, that's a real problem. There are a lot of people uh, who are getting hit by that, and it's completely unfair what's happening to them. At the same time, you know, some of these places that say, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're not banned here, they do become these kinds of darker places, or, or, or they're full of a lot of stuff that's like you know, very, very fringe and I'm not gonna say that there's no fringe content that's available on the platform, but there is like a ton of like very mainstream, very popular stuff. The problems with YouTube go beyond just this this, this kind of censorship. I mean, it's things like they're taking 50% of, of every ad dollar. Um, you know, they're doing all of these other kinds of exploitative and mi- manipulative things. And so we have content creators, the, the vast, vast majority of our content creators, they're not facing censorship from YouTube. That's not why they're coming on. They're coming on because they like the idea Idea of their earnings settling right away, earning more from every view, um, you know, having more control over their identity. Just that idea of ownership is appealing to people. Um, they're, they're aware that you know when they build up their following on YouTube, they're building on top of quicksand you know so even if something hasn't happened to them something can happen YouTube can change the rules and so this idea of being more of an owner rather than being a renter you know that's appealing to a lot of people even people who aren't facing any kinds of of um, you know challenges from YouTube specifically
0: we're almost at a break here and when we get back I want to ask you more about the way that idea of ownership of your own identity and the additional benefits of escaping that ecosystem. But I also do want to talk a bit more about what it means to be an alternative in a system where a lot of the people who are going to join your system have been kicked out for one reason or another and the particular challenges that that poses. I am talking with Jeremy Kaufman here on Keys Talk Radio and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. And a reminder, all of the radio episodes are turned into a podcast and published to mattasher.com, where you can download them or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. We are talking about Odyssey, a video-sharing platform, and we were talking about what it is implies if you are setting up a network that's an alternative to the established one. And what ends up happening, and this is not unique to what you've done, I've seen this pattern repeat itself many times, if someone sets up a network, a social network, video sharing, or other content sharing network that is for anyone, but it's specifically targeted in some ways for the people who've had a bad experience at one of the existing platforms, that will tend to attract a lot of people who have left those platforms without a choice because they were banned. Now, some of those bans are um, unfair. Uh, It's hard to qualify what makes for unfair, But it's certainly the case that a lot of those bands are bands of people who no platform necessarily wants. They're creating content that is from the perspective of the broader culture, highly undesirable. So what ends up happening in a lot of these is you end up with something like a lemon market as an analogy to the car market where the people who sell their used cars are the people who've had really bad experiences with their car and need to unload them, uh, right? These are undesirables in some sense, and I don't want to stigmatize just – Undesirable from the perspective of the broader culture. So, how do you deal with the possible influx of a large percentage of the people coming in and sharing content that you might go, Oh, I don't really want that on our website?
1: So, I think the phenomenon you're describing is true of, of some alternatives, maybe even many alternatives. We aren't an alternative, in my view. We're a successor. We're not simply trying to clone what came before and said, oh, we're just gonna allow you to do whatever you want over here. We've built something that's genuinely different, that has genuinely better properties than what's came before. And so are there some of these people who have gotten in trouble on other platforms that are available uh, on Odyssey? Yeah, you can go watch Alex Jones on Odyssey. Alex Jones is is on there, okay? Um, It's not, however, um, something that's just like marketed to and appealing to these kinds of people. Anyone who loads the Odyssey homepage and goes through some of the categories and some of the things you can find there, it's not full of that stuff. That's not what it is. That's not who it's popular with. Is there—is there some – are there some of these people on there? Yeah, there are because we think that um, – we do think some of these other platforms are, are making mistakes and being um, way too aggressive uh, and way too political in terms of what they allow. Um, we see people as having the right to to make choices for them themselves. I will give that as a funny aside, you know, people's perspective on censorship is always like that it's for other people. You know, if you talk to someone and they say like, uh, oh, you know, I think uh, your know, Facebook or, or Google shouldn't be um, allowing people to see these kinds of things. You say, oh well, do you want them to decide for you what you're allowed to see, or would you rather decide for yourself? You know, pretty much everyone will say they would prefer to decide for themselves. They want the companies to decide for other people, not not for themselves. Um, but anyway, because of, of what we're building, has these genuinely better properties. It's not just a knockoff where we're saying come and 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 be uh, you know crazy or whatever. Um, it's something that we built from the ground up um, with this next generation approach, with this blockchain based approach, um, and so it's appealing to to really vast variety of people and and we have all kinds of political opinions we have all kinds of science and engineering videos we have all kinds of just like funny and wacky and weird videos um it's not it's not like some of those other quote alternatives where you go on there and it feels like yeah this is kind of a cesspit it's uh, a really really wide variety of stuff you know there are several hundred youtubers with more than a million subscribers on youtube who are now publishing uh, on Odyssey. Um, and so it's, it's, it, it is like, it has a lot of mainstream appeal.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of those other advantages that you mentioned, uh, control over identity and, and earning settling right away. I don't, I think that most people who aren't, uh, and most people aren't, top-earning YouTube uh, creators or, or even mid-level YouTube creators, they don't really understand how the online content marketplace at places like Facebook, uh, at, well, YouTube, Facebook to some extent, but more so YouTube work and how content creators get paid. Maybe you could give a view of how that works and how your own system is different.
1: Yeah, so typically the way that it works is You're going to publish videos. You're going to have some kind of monetization options in terms of how many um, how much you want to be monetizing, and more monetizing usually means more ads. Um, you used to be able to do free videos on YouTube. You can't do that anymore, so YouTube sort of demands that the videos be um, um, be monetized. And and me-
0: meaning that you can't run a video without ads. I, I think they have right. a paid paid program where you, you, you can, but then you're paying to put up the content, right? But in general, you can't just opt out of having ads uh, run on your content.
1: Yeah, fair. And um, and then you're going to earn some kind of what's called, uh, it's typically um, given as the acronym, um, CPM, um, which is basically what your earnings are going to be per 1,000 views. So a, a common uh, earning on YouTube, I think this is actually the average, is, um, is, is a couple of dollars, so like 2 $3 uh, CPM. Um, So that's you're making two or three dollars per thousand views. And sometimes I think it's helpful to to look at that on a per view basis, right, which means that like each view is frequently generating a penny, uh, sometimes less than a penny. Um, So so video views are you're not making that much um, um, per view. And uh, if your channel is doing hitting certain audiences it can be higher so if you have a channel where hey the audience is really wealthy and, and they're big spenders you know then your CPMs tend to go higher because the advertisers want to market to those people so at the upper end channels might be earning a you know $20 CPM um, would be a pretty pretty high CPM to be earning so that's $20 per, per thousand views. Um, our approach is we do also do this, uh, the the earnings per view, Um, we give creators a choice uh, as to whether or not they want to monetize. Um, We are actually, with the advertising um, supporting model, um, I will say this is a a bit of a work in progress for us. Um, We started with this blockchain-based monetization, and we still have that system. And so just off of the blockchain-based earnings, um, people are earning a comparable uh, or higher CPM uh, to, to YouTube in many cases. And um, as we we build out our advertising system and we are now doing some ads, our approach is, again, to always give people a choice. Um, so that's what really one of our fundamental values in terms of how we design everything is, is people ought to have a choice. And so in our case, that means that um, for example, a viewer should always have the choice to, to basically be paying the comparable amount. So if a creator is making a $10 CPM, you as a viewer should be able to at least pay the comparable amount and, and not watch ads. Um, YouTube's approach is frequently to make you pay $10 a month um, to avoid the ads. That's actually way more uh, than um, you know, sort of what it's, it's worth. It's, it's really crazy to me how little um, people's time is worth uh, according to the advertisers and these and these sites, you know, where they're saying that um, you know the creator's only going to make a penny for you to spend thirty seconds of your time watching an ad, you know, that's kind of crazy. Um, and I think a, a lot of people would rather pay the penny, um, you know, rather than than spend thirty seconds um, you know watching an advertisement. And so we're taking approaches um, in that direction, but at the same time, at the end of the day. That is what the advertisers are willing to pay. So we don't claim that there's going to be some free lunch. If you want to do ad-supported content and earn from ads, the CPMS that we're going to offer are going to be comparable to YouTube. Um, we are going to take less of a cut, so creators can earn a little bit more uh, on uh, on Odyssey. Um, but it's uh, it's not um, you know there's no free lunch. We're not promising hey you earn five x or something like that. You know.
0: Got it. I'm uh, talking with Jeremy kaufman here about odyssey a video sharing website and the technology that underlies it one of the things that people don't think about or, or often realize uh, maybe this falls into the category of the unknown knowns is that of course yes all these services or businesses and they're making these decisions about what content to show based on a variety of different things and often those are financial considerations there's nothing wrong with that but it is generally a black box to the end user. They have no idea why they're seeing this particular thing. The recommendation engine decided this. And what is hidden from them is also a black box. And it's, it's not clear. This is particularly actually an issue for people who upload videos. Uh, one of the interviews I did for uh, The Filter, the podcast version of this radio show, was with James Corbett, and he had a huge number of subscribers on YouTube. I think it was something close to a million, was producing a lot of great content. And the video that I created talking with him um, ended up getting a fair number of views on YouTube – but it got a lot more views after he was banned from YouTube and people were searching the website for his content. So I knew immediately when he had been banned from YouTube because all of a sudden my interview with him was getting a huge number of hits. Now, I I knew that because of my own position as someone who's interviewed him, but for regular people on the website, they don't know what they're missing because it's simply gone. And I think that that actually has a fairly profound impact on our culture when the the number one, I think YouTube is maybe the number two website overall on the internet, uh, number two or three. But when when such a behemoth has now decided that certain people are unreachable, that's going to have an effect, no?
1: Absolutely. And I, I mean, and I just think it's, it's disturbing. I, just the way that it just like, they just... Disappear, you know, they're just gone. Um, you know, here one day, um, you know, gone the next. And I think that there's a lot of people that just kind of rubs the wrong way. Like, and James, I know that James is like controversial, but like, you know, he's 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 even if you dislike James, like he's clearly well intentioned, you know, right? And so it's like this idea that someone like James, you know, shouldn't be allowed to to communicate with people. Um, to me, uh, it, it certainly rubs my sensibilities the wrong way and that's part of why we came up with this solution and this approach which is says that like hey we can't do that it's baked in right when you when you click the the follow button uh, on a on a channel that is written to your local cryptocurrency wallet and that's uh that's this kind of like immutable thing that we can't uh we can't mess up and can't take away from you james owns his channel james publishes uh uh, to library and odyssey james owns his channel we can't reach into his wallet and take away his channel and we can't reach into your wallet and, and take away your relationship with james and i think that's the way that it it ought to be i think it's strange you know i something that i like to do is like think about how we would um um apply like our moral norms in the physical space and apply them to the digital space and it's like look if you want to be friends with someone you get to be friends with someone if you get if you want to have a conversation with someone you get to have a conversation with someone like it's not my place to to be taking your ability to do that away from you
0: in essence what's happening is that these platforms are mediating our relationships this is certainly true on youtube it's also true on all of the other social networks on facebook on linkedin the relationships that we have with other people in this virtual way, and now I think for most of us, most of our relationships are mostly virtual. Most of the communication happens that way, the connections happen sometimes over email, but often first by one of these social networks, and the the limits of how those relationships will develop and who they can develop with, those are set by the platforms we use.
1: Yeah. And that was one of the most disturbing parts about all this to me. And the, and the, and the censorship that happened in, in 2020 was really unprecedented. Uh, and as someone who like follows this stuff semi-obsessively, you because know, we've been doing this for five years, uh, maybe longer. And uh, what happened in 2020 was well beyond anything that had ever happened before. And it was happening at a time when people were being told You're not allowed to leave your house, or you're not supposed to, uh, depending on where you live. Either You're literally not allowed or you're not supposed to. And so you're not allowed to go see a friend. You're not allowed to go hang out with people. You can't go to the coffee shop and have a conversation. The only place we were supposed to be having conversations was online. And then the places online were um, saying you're not allowed to talk to people there either. Um, and so it was, it was really disturbing to me, like during a time in which it's harder than ever to talk in person, we need to be dialing this behavior back, right? Be, um, because it's more necessary that people be able to communicate freely online if they can't communicate freely in person. And so we're getting this kind of like double punch where you, you can't communicate in person and you're not allowed to communicate online. So it, it, um, it really rubbed me the wrong way. I have a whole talk on this um, a whole—it's like a forty-five minutes long, just like me going through all the censorship examples and how crazy they are and how unprecedented they were. Um, so I'm a bit of like an encyclopedia on this, and I do not don't need to necessarily go into it unless you want me to. But um, you know, it's—it's—it uh, really is something that should be disturbing to—to to, uh, you know, I think it should be disturbing to everyone. Well,
0: when we come back from the break, I'm going to give my own thoughts about how it is that I think that those platforms ended up being so aggressive in terms of censoring and managing relationships between people what brought that about i I think it is actually related to the huge uh increase in the use of those platforms during the lockdowns but uh we will be right back here with jeremy kaufman on keys talk fm Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Jeremy Kaufman, CEO of Odyssey, a video sharing platform, and we were discussing censorship and the role that these social media networks play in a sense in a set in essence managing our relationships with other people who are also on the platform and we were talking about the relationship between the increased level of censorship which i think pretty much everybody agrees uh, spiked up highly in 2020 And the fact that all of us, um, almost all of us, were stuck at home and doing much more online, including using these networks, much more. My own take on this is that the more important these networks became, um, the more they became, in essence, politically in play. In other words the if you think about lobbying as an activity and lobbying doesn't just mean lobbying the government it can mean lobbying a private company or attacking them for behaviors that you don't like the return that you get on that increases as the uh, as the value as the value of that property goes up. The more people who are on it, the more important it is, if you're a political actor, to try to get your opponents knocked off that platform. The more people who are spending time at home watching those videos, if you're a political advocate, the more important it is to you to get those other people off the site, if you can. One of the things that happened right around 2020, a little bit before that, was that networks like Facebook and YouTube dipped their first toes into the waters of censorship when it came not just to banning content that was illegal or you know or offensive kind of beyond the pale but also to knocking off content or shadow banning or those other methods it has to suppress content knocking off those pieces of content that were merely not in ideological alignment with a certain group of people and once they began to do that, once they dipped their toe into those waters, once they you know unplugged that dam, however you wanna analogize that, that kind of, that created a battlefield. It sent a signal to everyone else out there that, hey, the way to win may not be to create content that's better than the other people out there, more persuasive, whatever it is, the way to do this may be to lobby the refs or threaten the refs or whatever else it is in in essence it put the idea of the rules of what content is permissible into play and everyone out there was like oh yeah the new game isn't create the content the new game is, is force the hand of Facebook or YouTube to remove the content of people we don't like
1: yeah I, I completely agree with that idea that a kind of, what's the term for it? But it, it made the concept known, and then it became something that that people wanted to do. And so as they, um, as they began expanding uh, their rules and their policies in terms of what they'd be willing to act on, it also was this sort of self-reinforcing effect where it amplified um, the calls for them to do it more and more. And I also think it normalized it inside of the companies as well, where the people who are working at these companies, they became aware that, oh, our company can do this now. We have the ability to do this now. The rules have changed. Um, And you saw more agitation even within the companies. And I think that's actually a, a substantial part of what's going on here, where if you look at Um, You you can look at the major Silicon Valley companies, and it's true of all of them, where it's basically 90-95% plus donate to Democrats versus Republicans. And if you've got that much of an ideological slant... People, it's very difficult for people to be objective. I wouldn't claim that I'm an objective uh, person. You know, everyone has these subject uh, inter- interprets things subjectively based off of their own biases. And so, if you have a company that's where you know almost everyone is of one political slant, you're going to get groupthink, right? Your best bet, if you you know, to the extent that we can do well, you would need you need a mix. Of opinions and a mix of perspectives, um, so that at least those biases can maybe cancel each other out or get or get counterbalanced. Um, um, but I think what we've seen is um, that they're they're very slanted in one direction, and it also has to do with the kinds of people who work there.
0: For sure, for sure it does. That is, a, is it's another form of the battlefield is within the company. And actually related to that, what have you done in terms of your own company to try to insulate from those pressures or do you lean into those in some way?
1: Well, we try... To be um, an apolitical company, we try to, uh, and we have a mixture of, of ideologies of the of the people who work here. One thing I, I do uh, uh, we do sort of press people on is that we do want you to have a very pro uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression um, kind of orientation, and so that's especially true of anyone who is in a position of 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 moderating. And so you know we're trying to really only rein in things that are you know hey this is a clear call of Violence, you know, this is this is clearly illegal. This is well, it's clearly legal. You know, this this kind of thing, um, and to try to get, you know, we're trying to make sure that the people who are put in those positions that that is their orientation, and that they're not, you know, they're not going to start saying, you know, oh, because I'm a Democrat or, or because I'm a Republican or a Libertarian or whatever they might be, that they're going to, um, you know, try to to put their ideology in terms of their their moderation actions.
0: I think that one of the cultural changes we've seen that has made those voices within companies lobbying them about content on the platform much louder, much harder to ignore, is that we're in an era of reputational contagion. It used to be that the people who sold products were somewhat insulated both from the reputation of the company of the product they were selling and also from their customers. I've spoken before about the idea of bourgeois values where someone comes into your store to buy a shoe and you don't, You know, you don't care if he's a good human being in some particular moral system. You don't, you know, you don't care about any kind of orientation that he has. You don't care if he wants a woman's shoe and tries it on. It doesn't matter to you. What matters is that he comes in, pays you for it, and gets out, right? And you are, in a sense, indifferent to the ideology of this particular person, but Nowadays, certain ideologies, a lot of ideologies that uh, that aren't shared, this seems to be especially a thing among the progressive left. Anything, anyone outside of their ideological framework is tarnished, and any interactions you have with them that are of a commercial na- nature tarnish you. So you, the idea is, you don't want to platform anyone who is toxic, anyone who is toxic who has toxic ideologies. They're contagious. This is, in general, a time of contagion. And that that toxicity spreads. So if you are a platform that hosts content that a particular group within the company considers toxic, it's not enough for them just to say th- that at that company, well, you know we host a variety of different viewpoints, and we're not endorsing it by putting on its us it on our platform. In the modern era, just putting it on the platform, Contaminates you with the toxicity of the content or the toxicity of the people who are on there. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: I I completely agree, and it's you know my um, it's a very sort of like foreign uh, psychology uh, to me. So you know I can attempt to I'm try I try to like empathize with it and, and understand it so that I can at least you know get where they're they're coming from. But it's it's so strange to me because again my intuition is much more like well like look if I was running a coffee shop or if I was running a restaurant and like people had political beliefs that i disagreed with like yeah they can eat there and they can have a conversation you know um i i think that the um you know we're we're more we're more productive people we're more efficient you know we have a more efficient system like everything works better if we don't demand ideological conformity from every vendor and every person we're buying things from and it's just like i just can't you know, I, I, I want to buy a good pair of shoes. I want to get a good meal. I want to get whatever. Like, you know, I, I tend to be much more towards like, well, like, let's just pick up the thing itself and 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 see if this is a, a good offer or a good deal or not. And so, um, I mean, I, I so like, I completely agree with the phenomenon. I think it's a strange one. I think it's also a self-defeating one. I'll say this, um, because, you know, in the same reason that, like. Um, like, 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 <laughs> get me in trouble. Like, racism is bad. Um, racism is also inefficient. Like, if you if you attempted to be more closed off in terms of how you run a community or run an economy, you're going to get out-competed um, by the people that aren't, right? Um, an economy that's that's multicultural and inclusive is going to out-compete an economy that says, hey, only one type of person can can be in this economy. And it's, I think that if the progressives continue to go in that, and it's not all progressives, I want to be I want to be clear, we have lots of progressives on the platform. We have some very pro-free speech progressives that you can watch on, on Odyssey with the Young Turks on, all these other people. So I'm not, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but um, you know that it, for the people who have that that mindset of like I need to agree with someone to to do um, um, you know to, to transact with them economically, I think it's going to end up being self defeating because they're going to be in this bubble, um, and everyone else is going to still be in that 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 more interoperative way of working, um, and and so. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's, uh, I'm, I will say, I'm like an inveterate optimist, it's really tough to get me to be pessimistic, so maybe I'm just being uh, being an optimist there, um, but it's been strange to watch, where like all kinds of things, you know, your chicken sandwich, your beans, cans of beans got politicized in 2020, where it's like, you know, you're buying this one type of bean, that you're a Republican, or you're buying this other type of bean, you're a Democrat, and um, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's strange times. It's a little disturbing, um, uh, for sure.
0: We're almost out of time on the radio part of the show. Are you okay to stick around on the, uh, for the extra podcast after party segment?
1: Sure, that'd be great. Thanks for having me on. Great.
0: Sure thing. One, one, I do have time for one more question here on the radio i wanted to ask you about your favorite creators on the platform maybe you could give a shout out to them who are they
1: sure i mean i like um a lot of the the um like science and engineering type stuff so like the veritasiums the three i, I really like three blue one brown um as a creator uh, that, that you can watch um outside of that area um i do there's a creator named um uh, j-reg who does this it's it is political but it's not anyone he calls himself an anti-centrist and he does all these sort of like um comedic sketches from all the different uh corners of the political compass and i think that channel is pretty funny
0: awesome we'll be sure to check those out and for all of the listeners this is o-d-y-s-e-e dot com right
1: that's right, and follow Matt on there as well. Uh, channel's Matt Asher. Uh, so smash that, uh, smash that subscribe button, and, uh, and and help Matt build his following on Odyssey.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you to all the radio listeners. We will pick it back up on the podcast version. I'm going to begin by asking about some legal issues that the company has had and we'll go into crypto a bit and maybe some political stuff. So uh, please go to mattasher.com. A little bit after this show airs, we will upload all of the content there. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Matt. Welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show After Party, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. We're going to pick right back up. The library platform has a token, and this token is part of how it operates. I think we can be a little bit more technical now. Maybe you could give a a view into how that works and what the role of that token is in the platform and then what the role of crypto is generally and what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I I well I prefer to call it like the library network or something like this because it isn't it isn't platforms are typically centralized. Maybe you could call BitTorrent a platform. I don't know, um, but it's it's in our case it's um, it's basically like combining a public blockchain um, with a BitTorrent-like data network. So what that means is. Um, the library blockchain is its own public blockchain it's not built on ethereum or anything like this it's separate it's been live for years um you know no problems very solid technology um vetted by ieee Um, and uh when you publish what you're doing is you're making a blockchain record you're making a blockchain transaction included in that is um metadata so data about data um, this includes things like the title, who published it, all of these, all of these things. Um, the publish gets signed by an, uh, by an identity. These identities also exist on the blockchain. Um, and included in that metadata is a pointer to uh, a BitTorrent-like data network. Um, And so really, and in the early days, we used to call it this, um, we said that library was like, uh, you know, um, if Bitcoin and BitTorrent had had a baby. And that was actually the original sort of conception of the idea was just kind of combining those two things. Because BitTorrent, um, while well, it's a beautiful technology, it has a bunch of problems. It has a problem of there's no coherent catalog. It has problems of, of legitimacy um, because it lacks monetization and identity. Um, you know, creators really didn't um, adopt it. And so we saw using a public blockchain as a possibility to solve those problems. Um, and it really took off in this user-generated video space. And so we really, you know, we focused on that. And it's a long story, but that's, you know, how, how we got to where we are today with tens of millions of people, you know, watching videos on Odyssey every month.
0: The role of tokens in any of these networks is, there are a variety of roles, but one of the important ones is to rate limit people or to make it so that if someone wants to put data on that network or utilize its resources in some ways, they have to have skin in the game. They have to pay in some way. I assume that that's the same uh, in terms of the library network.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite similar. Um, and the library blockchain ends up being this this decentralized catalog um, of, uh, but but still coherent, right? So th- by that I mean it's like it's agreed upon. Everyone can search it. Everyone can look at it. And so you know, in the case of something like BitTorrent, there's no ability to understand what's actually on it. You have to go onto shady websites that relates to the illegitimate, the the general lack of, of legitimate usage. Um, not of course entirely. There's you know, I can download my Linux distribution over BitTorrent. I'm not saying it's a it's um, all illegitimate or something. But um, so. Yeah, same kind of thing um, here. It is. um, We think that the technology can scale quite a bit. Like we don't want to limit the volume of publishing to the, you know, to the extent that we, um, to the extent that we can. Um, I'll say maybe this is an interesting or good way of looking at it. Like I think I came at public blockchains as a computer scientist. Um, and so that is like a blockchain is this new way of storing information um, that didn't exist before. The tokenization is necessary to facilitate the database, um, but I think that it's, it's and, and so obviously you need to be thinking economically and financially, but I think it's a mistake to think of blockchain tokens and blockchains as like just these new financial instruments. I think we should be thinking of them as this new type of technology um, that can be um, used in all kinds of different ways, um, with using them as this catalog of information, just one of a, a vast, you know, number of possibilities of, of what of what we can do with this stuff. Because that's what really excites me, um, is the idea, you know, I'm not in, I'm not, I didn't get into blockchain because I wanted to, like, you know, get rich, 10x, hodl, all this stuff. I wanted to build something that was like, could had different properties from what came before, and was genuinely better. What came from what came before, and this idea of um, you know everyone can own their identity. We can have this shared listing of things that we've made, and no one owns it. You know, that to me, there's just a beauty in that uh, idea, um, and I still think it's a beautiful idea. I still obsess over it, and um, so. Uh, this may have lost coherency. But, uh, but yeah, that's like that's definitely um, what, what my motivation was. And I think that's the way I encourage people to kind of think about um, public blockchains.
0: I think that is a good way to think about it, though regardless of uh, motivations and goals, companies need to make money, in- including yours. And the particular way that you're doing that, the SEC is maybe not happy about that.
1: Yeah. So we are being sued by the SEC. Um, the SEC doesn't like that we created a, uh, a token um, and also sold some of that uh, token. Um, we have the ability to make money other ways. Of course, we now make money through Odyssey, um, you know, off of advertisement and off of we do now non-blockchain based payments. So you can pay with your credit card and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, it's it's a pretty crazy case. I, don't, I mean, I can try to take it from the top. I will say we have a website, help lbry save crypto, that goes into great detail um, about all of it. Uh, but basically, um, uh, you know, the SEC's the rules uh, here they're incredibly unclear. Um, no one knows what they are. I actually we regularly on Twitter. Uh, Tell Gary Gensler that we'll pay him ten million dollars if he will link to us how a new blockchain company. What are the rules that a new blockchain company is supposed to follow? He's the chair of the SEC. He's the head of the SEC. And so, like the the SEC, what the SEC has done is it's taken these incredibly unclear regulations, and then it goes after these companies and it goes and it it demands these no admit, no deny settlements, um, which the SEC offered us. They said, hey, we, we can get, you can give us a million dollars. And we said, okay, we'll give you a million dollars, but how are we supposed to do it right moving forward? And they said, we can't tell you that. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you any money then. Like, I'll give you money. I mean, like, look, if I, I've been trying to follow the law. I've, we got lawyers from day one. We, we went out and reached out to the SEC. We've been incredibly transparent with everything that we're doing. We're not trying to hide anything. We're not doing these shady chains at companies. I mean, there's a public, there's public spreadsheets Um of you know everything we've been doing every log we actually stopped publishing them because the uh, well anyway um the so it's like it's been it's been crazy to me i mean i wasn't like a, a i wasn't a big fan of the government maybe before this uh but now it definitely has like really gotten me agitated because they 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 behave like the mafia that like is they, uh, that's yeah. actually
0: uh the subject of a conversation that aired recently, Uh, folks want to go back and listen to the podcast episode with Michael Humer, we talk about exactly that analogy that the government is essentially a mafia that is extorting you for rents in exchange for some kind of protection. Often that protection is just from them, um, (laughs) which seems like the case here. And in fact, you offered to pay their ransom money, but they would have to tell you what it was that you could do so that they wouldn't hit you up for another uh, for another million or whatever else it was down the the road. I, I want to go into actually a, a bit of the details of this because I think it's interesting and because I work for sure. a company that was involved in this field. The from to give the SEC view, it's due whether or not it's it's good. They look at these things as utility versus security tokens or your utility versus security in general, a security. Um, you're, are you disagreeing with that? I yeah, was going to well, go
1: into that. There, I mean, you can't, I, don't, I don't think this is even the SEC's view because there's there's no one who's played it more to the utility side than we have. Yeah, you know, We've explicitly discouraged investment. There's a clear utility and they're going after... I mean, Got, I it. You know, me, Got it. Let me let me just sort of
0: define those so people so, understand it, and then you know, and then if you want to push this. back or say that they're not following, so, uh, so. this is just the official. Let me just give the official word, um, whether or not that's what's actually happening. But the idea is that uh, there there's a level of paternalism in something like the SEC, in that one of their roles is to protect inexperienced investors from going out and buying securities, buying equity ownership in you know in a snake oil company that's the their position we want to protect this from happening and the way that's done is that if you want to share sell shares in a company in general, you can't just advertise, "Hey, I'm selling shares in my company. Anyone can come and grab them." You have to go through one of the public markets, like the stock market, or you have to limit the sales in your company to what are called incred- accredited investors, which just generally means people with a lot of money. Um, this imposes some significant limitations, and in, in my view, some some nasty ones on what on the liquidity of the market for companies that are at pre-IPO levels, that are not super multi-million dollar corporations. That's friction in the marketplace and in not a good way. The exception to this, and this is the exception that a lot of crypto companies have claimed is that what they're offering is not a security. They're not offering an investment in the company. They're offering a utility in the sense that this token that they're giving out, this virtual digital token, isn't a um, isn't an investment. It's something that you can use to get something done. So. The analogy that we that I used when I was working at a company called Polymath was, you know, if you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you buy tokens for the arcade, that's very clearly not an investment. You're not speculating on those arcade game tokens. You're buying them because you need them to play the games that you want to play. And so, what's been set up to some extent is this distinction: utility versus security. Where a utility is something that you buy to use on the platform or the network, whatever you want to call it, whereas a security would be something that you're speculating on. Uh, now, I'll let you kind of see where you guys fit in and give your own take on the SEC's approach.
1: No, I, I think that that's um, I think that that's correct. Although I think in one I'll say is that this utility versus security distinction. This is not. Encoded in any law, right? Um, this is not. There's not a law that says that there's these two different classes of tokens or anything like this. The, the SEC uses um, um, a law from the 1930s, and um, the way that that law is generally interpreted is through something called the Howey test. And the Howey test says that basically, if if um, if you are um, if you're selling something and, and people are buying it with an expectation of of profit, and uh, no and there's no use for it, uh, and also there's also a marketing opponent in terms of you're marketing it to people as right. uh, then that that's what makes something um, that's what makes something a, a security. Um, you know, and it, uh, it, it, the laws are are very very unclear, and this is generally something that's been so frustrating to me because you know i i would have paid them a, a million dollars up front I, you know i to tell me how to follow the law right i just want to know and the fact that it, just from the general economic perspective of having a successful economy and a functioning society it's like society ought to want people like me who are entrepreneurial who want to build things right you want to you, and i'll will pay my taxes you know like so you want if you want to have a successful you'll give American your pound economy. of flesh to the man yeah. as well <laughs> as
0: you can understand exactly what that is right in yeah
1: right and so it's like but you want to be empowering entrepreneurs and to have this system where like you already got to have a decent amount of risk tolerance to be an entrepreneur and now i'm taking on this additional like legal risk and and the system is so slow i've wanted to know the rules for four years and it's going to be another three um, before i find out what i'm actually allowed to do seven years millions of dollars spent um, and it's like it's just insane if, you know, it's like you don't have to be uh, a libertarian, anti-government guy. You could be a very pro you know, social democracy, uh, the state is good, you know, whatever. It still doesn't make sense um, for the it, system to though, be working though
0: this though way. It, it doesn't, I, doesn't make sense. I think you, you have to uh, recognize which angle you're coming at it from. If you're coming at it from the angle of a functional society with a robust marketplace that's innovative, yet it doesn't make any sense. If you're coming at it at it from the internal logic of the regulators, the more rules are ambiguous, the more things drag on, the more, you know, the more there's uncertainty from the perspective of the entrepreneur, it, to a large extent, the more power the regulatory body has, and the more they can up that 1 million to 2 million or whatever else oh, they of want, course, hold of your course, feet yeah. over the, the coals indefinitely, Right.
1: Yeah, oh, of course, from the, from their perspective. But I'm saying that like you can buy into the fact that the SEC has this job to protect investors, right? You can buy. I mean, I don't, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a I generally take a you know, voluntarist kind of perspective. But it's like if you, even if you think that all that is right and good, the way that they do it doesn't make any sense, right? So so yeah. So from the internal perspective of the SEC, what they're doing makes um, does make sense. Um, but, yeah, from from others it doesn't. And it actually doesn't even make sense to me that, like, what the sort of – well, I guess it does. The broader political, you know, fight over this stuff, it's like blockchain is popular. People like it. Like, it makes sense for the regulators who's who have – they can expand their purview. It makes sense for regulators to go after. It doesn't really make sense to me for politicians to enable the regulators because if something is popular with the masses – Politicians tend to side with the masses, you know, even against the interests of the state, because politicians need to get elected. Right. Um, And so, you know, why does someone what is the rationale for someone like Elizabeth Warren to be so anti Bitcoin? And I think it's more that people who like Bitcoin don't like Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> so Elizabeth it's doesn't it's like purely Bitcoin. <laughs> tribal is what you're yeah, saying. Exact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: this is, this is for sure the tribal era here. Uh, before we wrap up, you mentioned on the radio side some of the particular content creators that, uh, that you like. Uh, do you have a, a channel yourself on uh, Odyssey? And what kind of stuff can people find there?
1: I do. I don't publish, um, nearly as much as I should. My channel is, um, K-A-U-F-F-J and I've tried a bunch, a couple of different formats. I did some videos where I would just like walk and talk. I've done some interviews. I did a recent interview with Norman Finkelstein to see if like long form interviews was my style. Um, I, and you know, a lot of it is reposts of me doing other interviews. So you'll find, cause there's a repost system similar to like retweeting or things like this. Uh, and, um, I repost, uh, interviews, like I'll repost this one when it, you know, when it goes up. And so you can find one of the things you'll find more than anything else is actually series of, of me going on other shows, uh, is probably what's, what's on there, the, um, what's on there the most. Um, I do. I do actually use Twitter a lot. I know. I, I mean, hopefully, that's allowed, even though I'm uh, running a blockchain-based company. Um, so, if um, if you want my you know hot takes and my political takes and all that stuff, you can find some of that on my Twitter account, which is just my full name, Jeremy Kaufman.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program.
1: Thanks for having me on, Matt.